Hello, Northbrook. If you would like to locate Galatians 4 in your Bibles, I will be reading aloud verses 21 to 31, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud. Let's read together Galatians 4 and verses 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. These verses seem um, somewhat cryptic. And often people find it difficult to understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. He talks about a slave woman and a free woman, the son of a slave and the son of the free. He goes on to inform us that these two women represent two covenants. He connects them to two mountains and then refers to Jerusalem as our mother. It's almost enough to make your eyes glaze over and just kind of decide to keep on going, keep on going forward in the letter. But that would be a mistake, because these verses are not only a major transition point in the letter, they also serve to move us towards an answer for an important question. And I get this question a lot, both here and, and before here and back at the college. If we are no longer under the law as the people, the children of God, then how are we supposed to know what to do without the law? Or it gets phrased this way, how do we know what God expects of us in order to please him? Or, as a child of God, how am I supposed to know how to live if I don't have the law as a template, as a guide for me? How am I supposed to know if I'm obeying God or not? And some would even go so far as to say, well, if we're not under the law, then it's really up to us. We have liberty. We have freedom. It's up to us to decide how we should live and, and what God expects of us. And no one can tell me what to do because we're not under the law. Obviously, that's out there. And I think if you really look at Scripture, you know it's wrong. But I think if we really look at Scripture as well, we know that we're not under the law. But that still leaves the question of how are we to know how to live? That's going to be the question that Paul answers here in this letter to the Galatian churches. Now, Paul has 
more than adequately proven his argument that the Mosaic law cannot save, that it cannot redeem a person, it cannot make one right or righteous with God. He has proven conclusively that God considered Abraham righteous because he believed, not because of his works, not because of circumcision, as neither circumcision or the law existed at that point. And he has explained the purpose of the law and clearly made the point that the law brings us to Jesus. And at that point, when the person has come to Jesus, the law has no longer has a purpose in the life of the heir. That the believer who has placed trust in Jesus for acceptance with God no longer answers to the law. And in conjunction with that, now he he has also, in this letter, made many references to Abraham, made references to God's promise to Abraham, to made reference to heirs, the heir of Abraham, and also spoken of inheritance for the heir. And really, the portion of this letter that we have read today ties all of these together, showing us that the fulfillment of the promise of God, the covenant that he has made with Abram is dependent only upon God, not the works of humans. If, if you remember back in Galatians, Paul made, earlier in Galatians, Paul made reference to the covenant that God made with Abram and the promise of that covenant and that Abram believed and it was counted to him to, for righteousness. And if you remember that covenant, that, that covenant, Abraham, remember, he, or Abram did not walk through the animals. Only God did. Abram watched God do it. But Abram had no conditions upon him for the keeping of that covenant. If you remember, that covenant was completely dependent upon God, not anything that Abram did. And so that's what Paul is bringing to bear here. And, and in a story of uh, uh, some women and some children and some covenants and some mountains. He creates an allegory and then shows us that when we seek to bring the promises of God to fruition, we create a mess on our own as the flesh is opposed to God. What I want to do in our time together today is to briefly remind us of the story behind Paul's allegory. And then I have a chart of sorts that will be on the whiteboard behind me to show you that hopefully will make clear what Paul wants us to understand as he writes. So what's going on here? Many believe that Paul's illustration in these verses is a response to an argument used by the Judaizers. These false teachers were using the story of Sarah and Hagar and their respective sons, Isaac and Ishmael, to convince these Gentile believers that no matter what they believed about Jesus, they can only be considered the people of God through circumcision and by keeping the Mosaic law. It was okay to have trust in Jesus, but if you really wanted to be one of God's people, if you really wanted to be considered a descendant of Abraham, then you had to be circumcised and you had to keep the Mosaic law. Now, they use this story, and so I, I want us to kind of focus in on a part of that story that applies to what Paul is telling us here. 
you might remember that there came a point where Sarah, who was skeptical of God's promise, became tired of waiting for it to be fulfilled. She had been barren her entire life, and now in her 90s was well past the point of childbearing. And even though God had promised that Abram's heir would come through the womb of Sarah, she now took matters into her own hands. And in order to see the promise of God fulfilled, because she did not believe that God was going to do it, she decided to help God out a little bit, help God out a lot. And she brought her slave Hagar to Abraham and convinced him to father a child through her slave in order to bring to fruition the promises of God. A child was born from this relationship, and he was named Ishmael. And later, Sarah drove Hagar and Ishmael away to the desert because of the conflict that was going on. After that, she became pregnant by Abraham, and their son Isaac was born the son of promise. Now the Judaizers were using this story to argue that the Gentiles were the descendants of Ishmael and not Isaac. And therefore, they also were not the true descendants of Abraham because they were not heirs of the promise. From their perspective, to become an heir of the promise and to become a descendant of Abraham was to be circumcised and to keep the law of God's promise. Because they they didn't look all the way back to understand the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. They looked back to Mount Sinai where circumcision was demanded when God's people were first uh, brought to be and where, circum- where the law was given for God's people to obey God. And in their mind, to reject circumcision and the law, which was, which was in place totally at Mount Sinai, was to identify with Ishmael, who was not circumcised and who did not keep the law. Paul's response is that the issue with Ishmael, and, and by the way, much of that was true. But, but Paul's response is that the issue with Ishmael had nothing to do with circumcision or the keeping of the law. Instead, the problem with Ishmael was that he was the product of human works. He was the promise of, he was the product of human effort, the product of the flesh. He was a work of the flesh. Isaac, on the other hand, was the fulfillment of the promise. He was God accomplishing what only God could do. It was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child without God's intervention because Sarah was barren. So the fulfillment of the promise, Paul wants us to understand, is only possible through the work of God. But Paul takes it even further to make his point. Just as Ishmael, the product of human effort, 
was the son of a slave. So anyone who by human effort, what Paul calls the works of man or the works of the flesh, anyone who through human effort seeks acceptance with God is not a child of the promise, but a child of slavery. Slavery to the law and to the, and to sin. And therefore is not a descendant of Abraham. Because it has to come through the child of the promise. He or she, whoever chooses works of man, the product of the flesh, lives under the old covenant, which was established at Mount Sinai, outside the land of promise, outside the inheritance of God's people. But on the other hand, Anyone who, like Abraham, believes the promise of God was fulfilled in the work of Jesus, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus' work, not man's work, and trusts in Jesus' finished work, becomes a child of God, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, a son of uh, or daughter of the promise through the work of of God through the work of Jesus totally. Unlike half of the equation, Abraham and Hagar, which ultimately becomes none of the equation because it is accomplished by what people are able to do all the time. Unlike that, it is accomplished by God's power through a barren woman, to bring about a son or daughter of the promise. There's an interesting sidelight in here that I don't want to expand upon too much. But in the passage, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 obviously follows Isaiah 53. That's that's something you learn in, in seminary, is 54 follows 53. So it's, that's why seminary is so expensive. But Isaiah 53, we all know, is the, uh, is the passage that speaks of the one who's going to come, the, the offspring of Jesse. And that that one who's going to come is going to bear our stripes. He's going to take our sin on him. He's going to be cut off. He's going to die for his people. He's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, a borrowed tomb. But he's going to be raised from the dead. And on the heels of those promises and those prophecies in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, God says through the prophet to his people, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice. And he goes, he goes on there to say, Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. And it's not really looking back at Sarah. It's looking forward to Mary. And the fruition of God's prophecies and God's promises that there would be a son, there was a promised one who would come and bring reconciliation with God, who is a descendant of Adam and Eve and later Noah and later Abram and later David, that this one who would come 
will come through a barren woman. Well, I'll, I'll, theoretically through a barren woman, but it would come through would come through a woman. And as as Sarah was barren and unable to have children without God's intervention, God took it a step further with Mary to bring Jesus into the world. Mary did not have a husband. She had never had a physical relationship. Impossible to have a child. And yet, in God's power, God brought Jesus into the world in the fullness of time. That, that's something for you to think about. I don't have time to go into it any further. But, that, but that's why Paul brings this prophecy out. He wants us to understand that the person who is a descendant of Abraham through Sarah, possible only by the work of God, is free, and in context, free from the law. That person lives under the new covenant. That person inherits the land of promise and a place in the kingdom of God. There is so much more in these verses we could talk about today. There there are some other references here that are uh, kind of difficult. But I want to focus in on that that part of it today. But I also want to um, get to the dots that I believe Paul is connecting here for us in this passage. As he moves us from his argument of why the law does not save and moves us towards that Jesus is the one through whom we have salvation. But even more than that, that Jesus is the one and through the work of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace and God's power, that we are transformed into the image of Jesus. He's going to move us from stop relying on the works of the flesh and the keeping of the law for acceptance with God and understand that what pleases God is going to be a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it's going to look like. So this passage transitions us in that way. And that's what I've got on the whiteboard here that I hope will illustrate this for you. So I have this high-tech whiteboard. Um, It's not one of those ones that you can just, you know, write on or whatever, and everything comes up on screens or whatever. This is is a low-tech whiteboard. But because my handwriting is so bad, I went ahead and did this ahead of time. Uh, so that maybe my handwriting would be a little bit better as you um, look at it. Those who have been in the immersion group with me, um, you've already seen this. We've already gone through it. But my handwriting was so bad that uh, the people who took pictures, I'm not sure they actually got all this. Plus, this has a few things more than what I talked about on that day. But let's just quickly look at this and understand the direction of Paul's argument in relation to this passage. I want to start back here with um, Abram, with the promise. Paul centers so much in this letter on the promise of God and, and the promises made to Abram. God promised him an heir, and he promised him a great nation, and he promised him land. And and those those were fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Their ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. Jesus corresponds to the heir. God's people living in the kingdom of God corresponds to this great nation. And the new heaven and the new earth corresponds to the inheritance or the land 
that is promised. But this is, there, there is much with this that is um, not yet, as we, as we talk about. Jesus already has come, and, and he is saving his people. Um, he has, he has, uh, he's bringing them to salvation. God is bringing them to salvation in Jesus. And Jesus, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit continue to save. Um, we are already God's people and we live in the spiritual kingdom of Jesus, but we are looking forward to the day when all of God's people are gathered in and the physical kingdom of Jesus begins and Jesus rules and reigns over a physical kingdom. And we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, which obviously is not yet. But in the meantime, there's an already taking place. Jesus has already come. And we already can experience salvation through faith in Jesus. And we already can experience living in the kingdom and kingdom life. Uh, but but uh, there's much yet to be fulfilled. In the already portion of it, though, that's what Paul is talking about here. And he's talking about two paths. I mentioned two paths at the end of uh, last week. He's talking about two paths. One path is the path that only God can accomplish. It's the things that only God can do. And and the other path is the path of what man can accomplish. And and real briefly, um, Paul is constructing this allegory to point out this path of the promise coming through Sarah, the barren one, to produce the heir, the offspring of Abraham, who foreshadows Jesus, just as Sarah in many ways, foreshadows Mary. He talks about to the mountain, the Mount Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, the city of God. And he talks about that being above. And we are told in Revelation that one day the city of God will come down to rest on Mount Zion, something that only God could do. And he speaks of a new covenant that God has brought into place uh, under the law of Christ instead of the Mosaic law. And, and this path is a path that's set up by God, by God's grace. He opens our eyes and opens our ears and gives us a heart of flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit to believe in the gospel of Jesus and to trust in his finished work, not ours, and in that, we find freedom under the law of Christ instead of slavery. This path, he brings us, he uses this path and this argument to bring us to Galatians 5, which we'll look at in the future, where he speaks of something called the fruit of the Spirit. And he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit as being love and these qualities, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, being connected to the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. The fruit of the Spirit in and of itself tells us that it's not a fruit of our works. It's not a product of our works. It is something that is produced in us by God's power, God's grace, God's purpose, through the work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus and become inside of us people of joy, people of peace, people of patience, people of kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And those things are displayed out of us. But they're displayed out of us, not because we're sitting around and saying, I am going to be more peaceful. I am going to be more patient. But because the Spirit 
is producing inside of us these fruits, things that are not natural to us. On the other hand, there is this path, the path of human effort, the path of human works. And the path of human works is illustrated by Hagar, who produced Ishmael through Abraham, not the son of promise, and connects that to Mount Sinai, that, that the works of the flesh in Hagar are connected to Mount Sinai, where the Mosaic law was given under the Old Covenant, and, and that that brings slavery. And so over here I would say that, that the human effort is the law mixed with the message of humans, what they can do, and, and that humans are, are basically good, and that humans with enough effort can please God, the message of, of in many ways, of humanism, and, and the exaltation of man, but it only produces slavery because it binds us to the Mosaic Law. So Paul is using these two women and these two sons to illustrate the difference between what God can, only can do and what man can accomplish in seeking to fulfill the promise of God. And he brings that forward to uh, Galatians 5 to speak of the works of the flesh. Again, it's very important to notice that Paul contrasts the works of humanity against the fruit of God. And he says this is, this is what comes from the works of, of man. Man is not inherently good. And, and when man seeks to please God through his own works, and when man seeks to, to gain acceptance with God through the keeping of the law, this is what comes from it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, or what some translations call witchcraft, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and everything like this. You know, the reality is, is that these things are not hard for us. We don't have to sit around and take classes on how to be idolaters. We don't need to get a degree on how to have fits of anger. For some of us, our fits of anger are so bad that we're told to get anger management classes. But the solution to our anger is not to, 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 to find ways to better ourselves. The, the solution to our anger is found up here in kindness and goodness and patience and peace, a work of God in us. These things are natural for us. We're really good at envying, and we're really good at everything like this, because that's what's natural to us. And when we come to God and seek to please him by the keeping of the law, or by our own efforts, or by our own works, what we're laying in front of him are works of the flesh, and that's the best that can come out of it. And Paul is calling us to a different life. But what's going on here in the churches of Galatia, Paul says, you began well, if you remember. You began running well. You you came to Jesus by grace. You believed the message of Jesus you found freedom in the law of Christ, and then they did this right turn, so to speak. And they bound themselves to the Mosaic law, believing that that was how they pleased God, and 
And all they can produce here, Paul says, are these things. Paul wants them to understand, wanted them to understand, he wants us to understand that the only way to please God in our lives, the only way to be the people God wants us to be, the only way to become like Jesus is not through our efforts, but through dependence upon the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to produce these things. The only way that our lives are going to be what God intended them to be, the only way that sanctification is going to take place in our lives is for us to want to desire to be like Jesus, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, and for us to stay in step with the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about more in the future. But that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen by simply trying to break habits. It's not going to happen by deciding not to do certain things. There has to be a transformation in us, and that transformation in us gives us the desire and gives us to the ability to live the way God wants us to live. It's that word I've been kicking around for all the way through Galatians, dependence, dependence, dependence. Sarah did not want to be dependent upon God for this child. Because after 10 years, she had concluded it wasn't possible. So she went a different route to produce the heir, what she could come up with and what man could do on his own. Instead of waiting and being dependent upon God. And so Paul says, this is the way to know how to live and how to become like Jesus is by being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there for today. Some of these things we're going to bring up and pull pull back to this as we move forward in this letter and as we look at chapter 5 and chapter 6. But again, I would urge you to understand that if you want to become like Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. You need God's power. You need the desire. And all of that means we have to be dependent upon God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even though we are not together today and we're listening at different times, the Holy Spirit is at work in each of your children and is using your word and I believe the explanation of your word in our lives to move us towards the image of your Son. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you love us enough to give us this word so that we can know who you are, what you've done for us, what you are doing for us, and how we are to live. We praise you in your Son's name. Amen.